Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey there, welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you're a returning subscriber, hey friend, how's it going today? Hope you're having an amazing day. Uh, You look amazing today as well. So you see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts you get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So hit that subscribe button and join us as we change the world by fixing our workplaces. We have a great episode for you today. We have Amy Bernard Bond here. She is a partner at Kaplan Walker. It's a law firm that um, really focuses on legal and the compliance space. And she's also an executive coach focused on legal and compliance. She has an amazing background in HR and in compliance and in coaching. And she's somebody that I've really learned a ton from. So Amy, thank you so much for coming on. Always uh, excited to dive in with you and get some value uh, for myself and for our audience. And uh, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. We had a couple of hiccups here because I haven't had my first cup of coffee, even though it is 11 o'clock here. So uh, Amy was very gracious, but we're going to dive right in. So Amy, you just joined um, Kaplan and Walker. Um, Tell us a little bit about that transition and what you've been working on recently, because I think you have some really cool stuff going on and some um, really interesting, uh, some some interesting perspectives that I think people can take and implement into their, uh, into their professional careers, right, you know, immediately. Yeah, thanks. It's been a, a fun journey, a career journey. Couldn't have planned it. Been friends with Jeff and Rebecca, Jeff Kaplan and Rebecca Walker, who are just, I think, the best in compliance and, and ethics support. Hired them when I was at McKesson and Allianz. We became good friends. We've spoken together in conferences, and an opportunity came up to join them. So I joined the firm as a partner February 1st, and I'm continuing my coaching and consulting business, which is primarily focused on compliance officers, because um, those are those are my people. And so for me, it's a full circle of benefit. I am doing risk assessments, program assessments, investigations training. We do corporate monitorships. Um, we do conflicts of interest reviews. So it's the work that I knew and loved before becoming a coach. Mm-hmm. And I still get to then bring that to my coach clients who are mostly compliance and ethics or general counsel who also have compliance responsibilities usually if it's a smaller company. And I feel like it keeps it real for me. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm really in tune with the day-to-day issues. I know what they're dealing with, strap plans, executive uh, pitches, those kinds of things. And then the challenges of a macro, our macroeconomic climate and the post-pandemic situation we have here. So, so it's when, fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is fun. And there's probably some really cool cross-pollination between the coaching side of your brain and the, you know, the lawyer side of your brain or the partner side of your brain. Talk to us a little bit about how your sort of coaching repertoire allows you to be a little bit more effective when you're doing a program assessment or you're dealing with something on, you know, through the Kaplan and Walker side of the fence. Yeah, I would say that they're compatible and it's actually probably more beneficial to my legal and and firm law firm clients that I'm a coach because ultimately if I'm working with you on a program assessment or risk assessment, and you mentioned, gosh, I'm, you know, yeah, you're right. We're low on headcount, for example. We're not staffed appropriately. I can help you influence, and I can basically give you on-the-spot coaching on how to get that done. Or if you have a new CEO, which is an issue I've written about recently, um, I can talk to you about, okay, these are some things you need to be aware of to make sure that you're securing the influence that you need. Yeah, that is such a key word, I think, that ends up, in many cases, this is just my read. So it, it, in, in many cases, this influence thing, because it's a little bit more amorphous, it's less objective and sort of tangible. It seems like p- 
people tend to sort of steer away from it. It's because it's harder to kind of like um, to gain purchase in that side. And in, in my from my perspective, that is like that's where all the value is created. That's where all yeah. the career accelerant happens uh, is through that sort of influence or that persuasion um, side of it. You know, I want to get into your your fast company article because I love it and <laughs> I sent it around to my team as a matter of fact. Oh. Um, but um, what are you seeing out there? What are you seeing people struggle with from the in, on the influence side of the fence? Like, is there a recurring theme in your coaching, in your executive coaching, um, where you feel like, you know, you obviously are good at this stuff. You're, you know, you're kind of an influence queen. So you see the world in kind of a different way. Is there a certain color that you see that you consistently see, you know, color being influence? Is there a certain um, color that you see that you, you find that your coaching clients tend to like be a little colorblind to? Like what is, what is the like, what's the, the gap in us being able to really actualize our influence and really be more effective as a result? I think building the relationships, I write a lot about how people rely too much on their credentials and their technical expertise rather than building the relationship first. And there's tremendous evidence done, you know, long before my time that we have the power to influence people only if two pre-existing conditions exist. One is that the person believes that you like them. And the second is that the person believes that you are open to their influence. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. Mm -hmm. So you need those things first. And I, and again, I think that the, the color for some people is that they just think if I'm just the best, if I just work super hard, um, I will get noticed. I'll get recognized. I'll get what I need because I'm being logical and I'm being rational. Um, but there has to be this no like trust ahead of time, which this influencing is talking about. And then, of course, it's and, and I'd say people have about 90 days when they're in a new role to establish that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, people's impressions of you popularly called your brand right now. Um, but it's really just what comes to mind when someone thinks of you. What's what is what is their stacked impression of you over time? And the, the tough thing about that is some people may have very limited exposure to you. So they'll make very quick judgments. Human beings make very quick snap judgments on limited information. And so that's why it's very important to do a 360 or check in on impressions because you never know. See, they may have been told something by someone else who had a bad impression. You might've had a bad day. You might've only had one interaction with them and they drew an impression from that. And you want to know that so that you can have the power to change it. So the other thing that I would say, uh, Nick, that, that some, I see people uh, afraid to do, which they should not be because the risk is so much higher. It's like doing a mini risk assessment on yourself right. is they have to be willing to learn their blind spots and to truly pull back the rug and say, okay, what do people think of me? What are some things I need to work on? What are some behaviors that are, aren't serving me that may have gotten to me to where I am, such as big one is um, people being overly assertive, overly aggressive, and not understanding the business. They come at it only from a compliance standpoint. That's what we're charged with. Of course, we love it. We understand it. We know what needs to be done. But for business people, it's 10% of their day. So right. they, we have to have that perspective and that empathy and come to them with, with that. I mean, we're talking about trust. And I know that you just said that, um, that relational piece is a big one, that sort of, uh, that conditional thinking is what I call it. When we kind of think in could, should, you know, it's, you know, I should be able to get ahead from working hard. Uh, yeah. I should be able to be noticed just because, um, you know, the best and I have these credentials. Unfortunately, we don't live in the world of should or could. We live in the world of what is, you know. And, you know, you said something 
that really resonated with me where you said, you know, you have these 90 days when somebody new comes in, in f- to affect that uh, impression. And you need to take that power back to yourself to kind of help craft that impression because it's going to be formed. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, you know, you, uh, you know, as a coach, it's not surprising as, you know, people get to know you. You're a very high agency person, and I think you're talking about a really high agency approach to building your brand or kind of controlling or crafting your reputation. Um, I think if you can digest what I just said about kind of that high agency approach, then it probably, and tell me what you think about this, but it probably makes that introspection necessary, that sort of risk assessment on yourself, a lot easier. I think if you don't get over that hump, you can never really do an honest risk assessment on yourself to use your term, which is probably hard even if you get over that hump, right? Like that, that takes a... Uh, a low ego to be, you know, intellectually honest and like be open to the feedback and really be trying to get some of that negative feedback. How do you, like, you've seen people go through this probably dozens and dozens of times, this process. What are like the common themes you see, you know, what is the, what's the extra push people need in order to get over that hump and start really absorbing and, you know, taking a clean look in the mirror Mm -hmm. on how they might be coming across? I think it's like anything. I think you have to believe you can do it. Mm. And you have to have a a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset, which is that agency you're talking about. If you have a fixed mindset, you, you believe there's in a certain, to a certain degree of a a fixed fate, you know, you're on Mm -hmm. a timeline, you're on a path, nothing's going to change that. If you're in a growth mindset and Americans are notoriously more on the growth agency side, entrepreneurial, you know, we think we can do anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There there are downsides to that too, but, but for the purposes of this, it's a positive thing. And, um, so having that growth mindset and believing, you know, I, I can shift out of this and thinking of to back to times when you may have done it before, when you changed schools as a kid or, you know, you, you survived, you know, a, a layoff or something and found a new job. I mean, that involves some hard work, some grit, some determination and a growth mindset of, yeah, I can do this. And sometimes we're pushed into it because we have to mm-hmm. through, through desperation, through, through change circumstances. And that can be a high motivator. Um, or sometimes it's because we're we're bored and we realize, gosh, I'm flatlining here. You know, I need to learn something new. I need to take a chance. So I think that that's some of it. And to your point, it does take vulnerability to gain self-awareness, which is what we're really talking about. But it also takes courage. Mm-hmm. The thing I would say, too, though, is that for my clients that go out there and do the 360 or get a coach or try to do it on their own, and there's some tips I can give people who may not have the resources to, to get a coach, we can talk about that, too, Um they, by asking, you know, how can I do better? What's one thing that I can do to, to make my work more effective with you? You are demonstrating leadership. Mm-hmm. You're demonstrating courage and vulnerability. Courage because you're asking. Um, you're making it psychologically safe for the other person to speak to you about it, right? Which you're giving them permission. People always have an impression. It's just, are they going to share it with you? Are you going to create the conditions that open them up? To sharing that with you because they don't have to, right? And we and we've probably all been in situations where we've tried to give negative feedback and we've been slammed for it, and we're like, never again, right. right? It's ruined a friendship or it's ruined a work relationship, and it's awful. So we remember those things, and as humans, we avoid pain, right? So unless someone's going to make it super safe for us to to tell them how they might be more effective in a kind, thoughtful, mm-hmm. supportive way, right. which is the key, then you're not going to know. So I'd say. Again, just like the, I love this for compliance officers because it's just like doing a risk assessment. You don't want blind spots in your company of risks around the corner, right? It's the same thing for us. You don't want blind spots around how you're coming off. You know, you might think that you just nailed it in that meeting, but someone else might say, you know, they missed this and this and this. They seemed like they were just driving an agenda. They didn't open it up for questions. They're not flexible. 
you know, I just tuned out after five seconds. You don't, right? You need to know that. Oh, okay. You know, what can I do? Thank you for the feedback. What can I do differently next time? And then, and then ask them for feedback after you, you know, thank you for the feedback. I implemented some of your suggestions. How am I doing? Scale of one to five, five being knocked it out of the ballpark, one being, wow, you need a lot of work. You know, you follow up and you get better and better and better. And then there's nothing to be afraid of because you already know your blind spots and you started to work on them. Yeah. And I think once you have a couple of those conversations, you realize that it's not that scary, especially if you can just frame whatever feedback you're getting as data. It's just yeah. data. They're just yeah. data, data points. And maybe that person's right, or maybe they lack the context, or maybe they're totally spot on. It's just data for you to take and you can decide if you're going to accept it or reject it. But you must appreciate that feedback because if you're not creating those circumstances where somebody feels safe to give you their unfettered actual unadulterated perspective on whatever you're asking about, then you're going to get something that's going to likely result in a false sense of security. It's just, that's just how it is because you can't see yourself all the time. Like, I don't know how I actually come across. I mean, I look at myself in the mirror a little in the morning, uh, but like, I'm not looking at myself all day. You know what I'm saying? So, um, you need, you know, it takes a village, you know, that thing, like it takes a village for us to get better because there's all these other eyes around us that we can get some feedback from if we're willing to accept it. Well, and one of my colleagues, uh, you'll love this, Tasha Yurik, has spent four years studying self-awareness. Mm. And she found that 90% of people believe they're self-aware. Yep. But the actual number is closer to 10 to 15%. I, I'm not shocked by that. I would, I'm, you know, it's kind of like everybody thinks they're a good driver, right? Everybody thinks that they're smarter <laughs> than average. <laughs> but I mean, my, you know, I've kind of come up with this that like anybody who says, oh, I have really high self-awareness. I think you're automatically part of that 90 or 85% because like, how could you, you know, the only way to sort of convey you have self-awareness, I think is to say, there's no way I could have, you know, it's kind of that Socrates thing of like, you know, I'm the greatest fool. In I don't know what I know. What yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I don't really know anything. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's wonderful. And I love what you said too about someone, you, the, the feedback may hit you, feedback may hit you and you may think that's not accurate and maybe it's not, or that's not fair. You mm-hmm. know, I only did that once and that's all they remember. That happens. Yeah, right. Right? Um, so, but then you could say, okay, then I, I get stubborn about it. And I'm like, great. That's my new goal. I'm going to change their impression because that's not me. And wow, I'm so glad that I know that. It sucks. But I'm going to work on changing it because that's not who I am. And they caught me on a bad day. Well, and that kind of speaks to this, you know, maybe this is the high agency thing. Maybe this is just the growth mindset perspective. But every threat has an equal and opposite opportunity. And if you have a bad, you know, if somebody has a bad impression of you to your point, or at least I'll speak for myself, sometimes I feel like, oh, that impression is etched in stone. There's nothing I can do about it, but it's not, it's Play-Doh. I mean, you can move an impression extremely quickly, especially when um, you have asked for feedback, they give it to you. And then in a short time period, right, you have that sort of psychological window of when, you know, there's that hope, that hope window opens up in the individual and they're like, well, maybe this will happen, you know, and then you can start to exhibit some new behaviors. Well, you can very quickly move that perception. And I just find that, um, there's just so much opportunity in this influence game because it's really the main game that we're in. I mean, when you even like, you know, we're talking about it from an individual, um, like, you know, uh, career perspective, but also just from a branding perspective of our, of whether it's legal or if it's compliance or it's HR, you know, there's this branding problem within our organizations. And if we can tap Mm -hmm. into this influence game, not only is it going to help us elevate our own careers, but it's probably going to elevate a lot of the careers around us to the extent that we can help influence how our department 
is perceived yes. in our organization. And in the absence of actual data, people, to to your point, they make snatch, snap ju judgments. If they have no data, guess what they're going to put on? They're going to put on some kind of a stereotype. So if they've had bad experience mm -hmm. with HR in the past or they've had a bad experience with a compliance officer or legal doesn't get the business, well, if you've done nothing to move that sort of latent impression, then that's the impression that you're going to be digging out of uh, if you even can raise your head up from your desk and, you know, have the awareness to see that, you know, you have this sort of impression on you. Um, but it's just something that like, you know, you know, maybe this is a good lead into your fast company article, but like we've had a ton of turnover over the last, uh, you know, year and a half, massive turnover across the stack of an organization, both on the front lines and even at the executive level. And I have seen a ton of turmoil sort of result from that as a new compliance officer steps into a program and, yes. you know, everybody wants to, you know, I have found, you know, and we talked about this a little bit, but I have found both a like lack of, um, lack of empathy for these new people coming in first and foremost, but more importantly, a lack of like, uh, opportunistic thinking about how this new person coming in is a real opportunity to rebrand yourself, rebrand yeah. your department, show your usefulness, whatever. Like, it's kind of like, it's kind of a reset. You know what I'm saying? It's like the, the slate is wiped clean and you kind of have a fresh start opportunity if you can take it. Let's talk a little bit about that opportunity where you see people sort of fall flat when somebody else comes in and ultimately kind of create some threats for themselves without maybe knowing it. Yeah, there has been so much turnover. I'd say about half of the people I work with have had a new job. Um, either they've sh shifted jobs or they've lost their job or a new CEO has come in or boss, depending on whether they're in the C-suite or not. And that is a huge opportunity. There's an emotional component to this. If you loved your boss or your CEO, it, it's it's distressing and you there's concern about who's coming in and that kind of thing. And so I would say that I want to just acknowledge that. And I would say that once the new person hits the ground and is in the office, you need to compartmentalize your feelings and kind of mourn at home, you know, or keep it to yourself because it's, it's so important to quickly establish rapport with the new boss to let them know that, that you support them. To your point, empathy is so important. Tons of pressure on new CEOs and yeah. new bosses coming into a role, right? The, I mean, tons of pressure. So, you know, in, in my article, I, I just, wrote about the five things that I, that I think are really important. And the first we've been talking about a little bit is the first impressions are key. Mm -hmm. So if you're really tight with your former boss, be aware that that is probably going to be something that will get back to your new boss slash CEO. And so you need to work. So you're already coming in as a potential threat to them from their perspective, because the first thing they do is they, they look at, at the tea leaves and they look at, okay, who was tight with the prior person? Who's going to support my agenda? Who's going to support my shift? Because a new CEO comes in for a reason, right? Yep. The board doesn't just randomly fire a CEO. It's either because they need to do a turnaround. They weren't happy with the pace of change. Something happened. So the other thing I would say is read the tea leaves and know, like try to figure out as best to the best of your ability, why the shift happened, because that's the lens through which your CEO is going to be seeing everything. They've been told something. They've been given a mandate around what needs to shift or change. And so figure out what that is so that you can align with that. For example, you know, if you had a pet project that was a million dollars to implement a, a change in control for, for, you know, fraud and abuse or something, you may need to go in and act as though that was not approved and talk about it and where it fits in the priorities. If it's a high risk, hopefully, of course, they'll still present it. But you don't want them to to just see your budget and say, well, what is this? You know, you yeah, want to right. bring them up to speed. Or if there's something you can let go that is a nice to have 
and you realize that you're in cost cutting mode and the CEO is in cost cutting mode, be proactive and come to them and say, you know, we could push this off for another year. I need to keep this and this, but I appreciate what we're, you know, the environment we're in right now and how optically this could look on your budget. So let's push this off a year. You get huge points, right? And, yeah. and it shows that you're, that you're a business thinker. That's right. And that, and that you get what's going on. Um, the, the third thing I would say is to adjust to their communication preferences. Everybody's got different styles. And some of my clients have, I've worked tightly with them on how they need to change their communication style for the new CEO. Right. I had one, I have one client who is, um, very creative, loves to brainstorm, is pretty chatty. And the CFO got promoted to, to the, uh, CEO role. And he is a, a man of few words and doesn't like to chat and wants to know, you know, exactly, you know, where you are on the map when you're talking to him. Your first sentence is key so he can place what you're talking about, whether you're asking for a decision, whether you're brainstorming. So they've had to totally shift. Mm-hmm. And the more you can figure that, do they like to text? Do they like, do they like email? Do they like meetings? And another client who could not get a, a meeting with the CEO to save her life. And she found out that, that the CEO loved to text and was texting all of her colleagues. And she was the only one. Emailing him. And he didn't even read the emails probably. Yeah, they, they weren't. They, they had these, these quick texts and she thought it was nuts because they were huge texts. Right. You know, but that's what sh- the CEO had. And so, you know, she adapted to her, her style and things got a lot better after that. So sometimes, so don't make it a mystery, right? Ask. It's the first question I ask, hey, how do you like to be communicated with? What's your preference? Uh, when something's urgent, how do you want me to really make it clear I need to meet with you? What if it's just day-to-day stuff? Of course, hopefully you have, you know, one-on-one meetings fairly regularly to capture you know, the stuff that isn't mm-hmm. urgent. And then another thing I would say is, is to be easy to work with. You know, our, our ultimate job in any job is to take work off our boss's desk and yep. make our department look good and be a team. And it's people that do that, that, that ultimately get, get promoted, get sponsored, get that support. And so we talked a little bit about this before, but empathize with the pressure your boss is feeling. Uh, remember when you started a, a new role, who helped you out, who gave you a helping hand, who showed you the lay of the land, helped you out with, with the political situations and the dynamics and some past history that could be baggage that some people are carrying around that, that the new person might not know. That's super helpful, right? Um, and then the other thing is if you're leading a team, it's very important to help your team adjust. Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if you've ever had this situation, but I've been in situations where my boss didn't get along with the new CEO and that impacts your entire team's ability to get stuff done, to get funding, to get headcount, to get space on the town hall calendar, to get airspace right in the comm schedule, training, all of that. So even if you're having a tough time, I'd say always present a positive face to your team. Yep. It's such it's such a morale kick if they if they, you know, and, and they can perceive if you're not getting on well. So I would say the pressure and and the the responsibility and and the challenge is on is on you as the leader to get it done so that you have green lighting for your team. And if you're not the leader of the department and you're, you're in a situation where your boss is having trouble with the new CEO or something, like don't be scared to coach up so that that person can True. more effectively manage up because, you know, unless you're going to go over their head, um, if you're seeing something, you know, again, don't let your lack of title in this example prevent you from being the leader that you could and should be. We have to share what we're seeing with folks. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you said earlier that, Trust is built from someone thinking that you like them and someone thinking that there's sort of a two-way street in terms of influence, that they'd be open to your influence if they think 
you're open to theirs, right? Yes. I would also yes. add into that, you know, like if I think you like me and also I think you are like me, those that's also an element that can help push us to trust better. And so when you're bringing that empathy to that new person coming in, I think it's a really big opportunity to, I mean, you can guess what they're going through. You can guess what that's like coming in. You can even have, you know, what I would always tell somebody is like, you got to sit down with that new person and just download from them and say like, what are your priorities? What are your biggest, you know, what are your biggest goals? Like what would a home run look like? Um, what are you anxious about? How can I be really helpful for you? What experience have you had with HR before? What experience have you had with compliance Mm -hmm. before? How have you seen that been, you know, how has that been frustrating? What is the best, you know, the best person who's ever worked for you? What did they exhibit? And that can open up the conversation to talk about, you know, and just having that conversation, uh, is going to give you a bunch of like, you know, primary level detail, uh, about how that person wants to communicate or what their goals are or whatever. But on the second level of communication, which is where I think the real influence is, is you're showing yourself to be, Hey, I'm on your team. I'm, you know, what's our new play coach. I'm going to run that play. Uh, I'm trying to help usher you in. And, you know, you talk, you know, we talk about how humans make these, these snap judgments, you know, and we talk, you know, the first thing you said is our first impressions are key. And I think it's so true that is a psychological landscape that we have in ourselves. And it's not that hard to extend that out to somebody else to start to empathize with them and better understand them so Mm -hmm. that we can more effectively persuade them. But it's like, you know, getting into the mind of the person you're trying to persuade or, or influence is like the foundation of any sort of lasting sort of positive influence. It's such an easy thing to have that 30 minute conversation when a new person comes in and really make it all about them, not about me, really try to understand them. That's going to really elevate you and kind of let them close the loop and kind of get that good first impression on you. Cause they're probably trying to make 50, you know, they have 50 impressions to make. They have all these different departments, you know, who's, who's capable, who's smart, who gets it, who doesn't, how am I going to make my goals a reality in this, you know, this ship of, uh, you know, with all these shipmates that I'm just meeting for, for, for the first time, those little tweaks to what we're doing and how we're engaging with leadership, I think can make massive impacts on how we're perceived in the organization and can really open up some spots at that sort of grown folks table for our, our yeah. seat to slot in, you know? Definitely. Um, and this, so this, my last thing on this is, Tell me if you agree with this, but I think everybody's main job is to make sure their boss is thrilled that they're on the team. I think that's your first and foremost job. Do you think that that's wrong? There's been a lot of talk about that lately because employee wellness and the pandemic and kind of the the contract between organizations and employees has shifted. And Mm -hmm. so I'd, I'd say yes and... Uh, I hope that it's reciprocal. Right. You know, what I, I think that the best leaders and this is the leaders that are creating sustainable, healthy, best places to work, workplaces, think of it as a two-way street. Agree. Um, and it's also true that in some industries, Wall Street, for example, is less forgiving and it's, it's all about the money. And so mm-hmm. if you want to be there, yeah, you need to, you know, you give to get because the the uh, the value exchange is different in some industries and in some positions, right? Right, and you and you have less influence and there's less concern over your well being in certain environments. And so you, I think, as a person, have to decide what's the trade off I'm willing to make. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so and then, but then to your point. Obviously, if you want to have the most employment choice, 
you're going to get along well with your boss. It is miserable to not get along with your boss. And that's usually yeah. not, not, not sustainable long-term. You may need the paycheck. There are reasons to stay at any job, you know, um, of course, even if you're not happy. Um, but it's going to be hard to make it work long-term if you don't find some, some peace about it. Yeah. And so, you know, I think kind of at a high level, I agree. I think it's so idiosyncratic. Like I can join a great company and work for a jerk that's like an anomaly in that company. And so what do I do there? I mean, at the end of the day, we all have choice and we can change jobs or whatever. But I'm saying to the extent that I'm in wherever I'm at, my view is that the highest agency thing I can do is solve for what I can solve for. I can't control my culture right. or, or, or whatever. And like to the extent I'm, sure. not, I'm, I'm not trying to jump ship, well, then it's my lock to pick. And I just think every lock can be picked. Like I worked for a guy, <laughs> this guy was, I mean, this was like, I, I talk about this guy all the time, but like I learned more <laughs> about like, uh, you know, the type of leader I want to be by just saying like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. But even him, I had a great relationship with. And, you know, did I have to grin and bear it sometimes for sure? But like it, it paid off well for me because it was bearable to go to work. I, I you know, I found a lane with him where I, did, I, I wasn't like in his ire all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't subject to the things that a lot of other people were subject to. And it's not because I'm like so special. It's just because I really spent a lot of time and effort trying to influence him and make sure that he knew that I was on his team and that, you know, like we're united in things. And I think you can do that without selling out. You can do that mm-hmm. without compromising yourself, who you are. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it takes effort. And sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's a little cringe, but it's like, well, you know, this is the, this is how the chessboard looks. I have to, you know, I have to play how I, you know, I, I have to make the moves with the piece, pieces I have right now, you know? Yeah. And some people aren't as flexible and it's a personal choice. Yep. Um, and they often have left cho- less choices. So it, it, I'm not judging. I'm not. Yeah, ju- I'm not judging it. People have to go with their values. That that's the primary driver for most of us. And we're usually when we're miserable or something feels off. It's usually because our values are being challenged or threatened. And so that's something okay. to pay attention to. And so, but I also think I, I believe in playing the long game. So yep. you raised a bunch of points right now. You learned a lot from that boss. You also learned to be flexible and have a flexible work style. Um, you probably learned a lot about conflict management yep. and how to, cause you said you found a lane where you weren't in the, in the, sh- you know, shooting range all the time. <laughs> um, and so those are really helpful things. And so did I, and I bring that to my coaching as well, cause you might get along well with one stakeholder, but not another stakeholder. So if you've only had great relationships, how are you going to manage a really difficult situ- you know, situation when it shows up and it's going to show up if you work long enough. Yeah, so, you're right. It is, especially with all the turnover, the odds of it showing up are going to be a lot higher. And so it's a muscle that we have to build. Let me ask you this. Like, I think you've probably always been probably like likable, influential person. Oh, I don't know. No, I mean, <laughs> I have like, my days. Well, I'm just saying, um, do you think that influence can be taught or do you think it's really the people who end up getting really good at it are people that are like naturally inclined? Like, you know, maybe you're never going to be a concert pianist unless you're like, you're naturally inclined. You know, is it that kind yeah. of a thing? Or is it something that just by rote practice, you can, you know, learn, you know, basic piano skills? What do you think yeah, about that? I, th- I think some people naturally are, are born with that gift of charm and ability to read people and to know what's funny in the moment or what mm-hmm. is needed at the moment. And, and that's nature and nurture, probably okay. you know, both. And I think that a lot of it can be learned if you have a growth mindset, if you're willing to get that feedback. Some people are always going to be better at this than others. Some people are, aren't going to care as much. I have people that, 
I know people that and I'm sure you do that don't care. They just want to do their work. They're, yeah. they're, they're technical experts and they find people messy and, and they don't want to deal with them. These are, there's usually extremely intelligent people yeah. who are brilliant in there, whether it's doctors, scientists, IT people, lawyers, you know, people who are, are real knowledge experts tend there some of these and, and they're not, you know, good at people, they're not good at managing people. And it's great for organizations to find a lane for those people because they generally should not be leading. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I mean, it takes all types, of course. Um, I would probably say that, you know, even if you're 300 pounds, you can probably like learn how to do a good jump shot. You know, you're probably not going to play in the NBA, but you can probably like go hoop with yep. some friends. It's going to take yeah. maybe a little bit extra practice and it's going to take that focus and that growth mindset um, to actually achieve it. But I think it is possible. It might be more painful though, if you're this highly technical, brilliant person yeah. that thinks, you know, people are messy and it's probably going to take that sort of internal drive to say, oh, this is a skill worth developing and I'm going to sort of pour into it. But yeah, maybe, and, and maybe we had to just sort of naturally sort, you know, maybe this is, you know, kind of a stupid thing to say, but we just naturally sort into where our personalities go. And then once we're in those realms, we really kind of perfect them more. I don't know. Well, what can really shift is if you have the motivation to change or to have intrinsic motivation. And so some people I think that may not have normally been open to, to change can become highly motivated when the, the pain of the status quo um, exceeds the pain of changing. And that literally has to happen really to be coachable. And okay. so, so you have to be, something has to happen to where you're so unhappy with the current situation or people are saying you have to change it so you're never getting promoted. And that happens a lot, right? That's a lot of what I coach. Or you're great, but you need to fix this one thing before you get to the C-suite. Um, so if people want to get ahead, that's the motivation to do it. They're like, they're being told, they're like, okay, I've got to be, get along with people better, or I've got to be more crisp and tight in my communications, um, that kind of thing. Or I need to have more gravitas. I'm not showing up confident. Like I own my stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not establishing enough of a voice for this company because it's always context specific. Um, so those are some of the challenges people work on. And so if they're highly motivated to do it, then they, they can do it. But I think if you're not in that zone of change and you're pretty comfortable and happy where you are and, or you've got young kids and you're just trying to make every day work, you know, and that, and I think everyone who has a family can get in that phase. Mm -hmm. I've had clients, for example, who are like, I just need to tread water right now. Like I, I don't want to be promoted. Um, and sometimes the company wants to promote them. And so they're, they're, they're treading water, yeah. trying to not, they do want to get promoted at some point, but not right now. I have a, right now I have a client who's phenomenal who has young kids and she just wants to spend, she sees what the cost is going to be. She right. has wonderful sponsors and mentors. She wants it, but like five to seven years from now, right. she's very self-aware. And so we're working on, okay, what do you need to do now to keep building your expertise in this area, what can we work on that will help strengthen you? And then when you're ready, boom, you're going to just shoot up like a rocket when you're personally ready. Right. So there's, there's so much to think about. I mean, that's gotta be such a fun job, huh? I mean, you're dealing with these situations, you get intimate with this person, you really have to very quickly understand them. You have to probably pretty quickly understand the landscape that they're trying to, you mm -hmm. know, navigate across. And, uh, I mean, what is that like? I mean, that's gotta be like every day is different or something. It is every day is different, which, which I love. Yeah. It's, it's all about, um, there's nothing better than, than sparking an insight yeah. with someone. And then they're like, Oh my God, I get why I do that. 
I could not understand why I was, I had one the other day that was, you know, it took a couple months to get there, but the arc, you know, of there's kind of an arc of coaching that we think about in terms of the growth, the growth and insight trajectory. And it's, it's really exciting when you've got, when you've got someone in the zone of change and you can support that. It's, it's like having, it's like being a leader and coaching your team. And I loved, I loved building a team. I loved mentoring and coaching my team. So this, I've just kind of moved that um, desire and, and passion to, to this type of work. Yeah, I feel like it's probably something like coded into our DNA where we just like get such a reward from like watching yeah. something grow, whether it's kids or like a garden or build something. You know what I'm saying? It's just like it's yeah. it's really this uh, really re- rewarding thing. Um, you also wrote this other article recently I want to touch on. Uh, which I love, and I think I need some help with this, Uh, the six steps to delivering (laughs) bad news and reducing risk. This is something I just struggle with all the time. Um, I feel like I spend too much time in, like, what I – and this is true for, like, feedback, bad news, whatever. This is something that I just struggle with. I feel like I'm so scared – you know, it's it's almost like I think everyone is, like, so fragile, and if I just, like, say the wrong thing, they're just going to shatter. And it's like Mm – I mean, it's kind of disrespectful at some level because people are way more resilient than I sort of give them credit for. And it ends up sort of delaying, I think, on balance, it ends up delaying, you know, it, it causes me to like delay the conversation a little bit. And yeah. it's we- I mean, it's a weakness for sure. But let's walk through the sort of how to deliver this bad news and how we can get into a better headspace um, so that we can do our duty and not be sort of negligent because of our own insecurities. Sure. And one important thing you're already bringing up is the power dynamic. It makes a difference. If you're delivering bad news up the chain yeah. versus if you're in power, like, like you are as head of your company and you're delivering news, let's say to a vendor, you know, or an employee or someone. Um, so, so just noting that for a minute, I'd have slightly different advice on that, but some of it would be the same. And the first step would be the same. And the first step is to psychologically prepare your audience. So whether you're delivering difficult news up or down, you want to give people at least a heartbeat to know that that you're about to say something that is unpleasant, either because something happened or there's something that you need to tell them about their situation or whatever it is. But um, we need to be prepared. And one great way to do that is to say, you know, I need to share something with you, you know, or, um, you know, may I give you some feedback? could be for you. You're asking permission that opens people up. You know, people really aren't going to say no, they can't really say no, but you are the important thing with that messaging is you're alerting them that you're the, the conversation has changed. It's about something really specific as opposed to where you're going to go eat lunch today or right. Or what time is the meeting? So always brace your audience for bad news because this reduces the risk of damaging relationships and it allows the other party to think clearly. It gives them that second to adjust. You know, when we're shocked, like, like say you're walking down the street and you're with a buddy and they say, hey, hey, man, by the way, I'm getting divorced. What do you think you would do? Most people stop in their tracks. We even have a phrase for that. And they turn to their, what? What did you just say? Right? Mm-hmm. Because we, we, we're like, I didn't just hear that. Right. So you don't want that to happen. That's us reacting to a stress. It's like a stress response. Like, what? So you don't want to... Um, shock someone, you want them to have that, that heartbeat. So saying, I wish I had better news. I need to talk to you about something that gives them that beat. Our our mind, our mind and brain tunes into that. 
And it's a signal to, okay, I'm fully present. I'm listening. I'm, I'm prepared. Yeah, it's like a, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of like a warning shot, or it's like a palate cleanser or mm-hmm. something to say, okay, mm-hmm. we're kind of shifting, and this is going to be a more, I don't know, serious conversation or something. Yeah, and it, it shows respect. Yep. Like, okay, I know this is not going to be a fun conversation for either of us, right? Yeah. And and you may be terrified because if you're if you're giving if you're the chief compliance officer and you're having to say there was a major data breach, right? This is what I had in mind when I wrote this article because I'm like, wow, I need to help equip people so they don't lose face, they don't get shot. And I did a ton of research around why we get shot. And I'll share that. And I think you'll find that fascinating. You know, the second thing is if you have the luxury of time, rehearse confident delivery. This is step number two. So when you're delivering bad news, you really want to practice your talking points. You want to have your bullet points ready. This is going to help you project the right amount of confidence and humility and gravitas. And you kind of need all those things. You need to feel you know, that it's, that it's empathy, but you also need to be strong and firm in, in what you're sharing. You need to be confident in, in why, why, you know, why are you saying this bad thing? Yeah. Um, but you also need to be empathetic. So be aware of your body tone, your, um, your body language, your, so your tone of voice. So don't be all crossed up. Don't be kind of, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, like I am right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you're having appropriate Facial gestures, like you wouldn't, some people smile and laugh when they get nervous. I'm working with a client right now who, who has a, a laugh after everything. And I've had to say, you know, sometimes when you're saying very serious things, you laugh. And I think that really confuses people. Right. And that, that detracts from trust because they don't, they don't know what to think. They don't know where to go with it. They don't know, like, is this right. funny? Are you kidding? Yeah. So we do have, we do, we do adopt these nervous ticks sometimes. And so again, you know, coaching and being aware of that can really help you with it. It's hard to change, but you can, yeah. it takes sustained effort though. Um, so, you know, when time is on your side, I would say record yourself presenting, see how you're coming across. You're okay. coming across with warmth and empathy as well as gravitas. I try to use a, a I would use a lower tone of voice, which conveys authority and empathy and warmth. Um, and I speak a little more slowly so that people can understand because when we are freaked out, yep. we d- don't hear as much. We're so worried we can, we can get agitated. So not, not coming in and speaking fast and being like, oh my God, this thing just happened. What do you think? Ah, I don't know what we're going to do. Right. You don't, you don't want to do that. Right. Um, so you want to, you want to say, Hey, this thing happened. This is, I'm going to tell you about it you know, and, and this kind of thing. So you want to sound calm, credible, and that you care about the impact of the news on the audience, whether it's the entire organization, like a data breach, or whether it's an individual person. So that can also reduce your stress at delivering the message next. So if you have a tough message, practicing actually helps take some of the stress out of it. And you get your body gets some mental memory around around this if you, if you practice it enough. Yeah. Um, and I mean, third- the odds of us falling into sort of a backup style in the context of something where it's heightened anxiety, there's all these sort of second and third order potential externalities from this thing, career wise, whatever, opportunity wise, um, without that practice, it's probably pretty easy to fall into those nervous ticks or those bad habits yes. that end up sort of compromising yes. the message, you know? Yes. And you don't want that. That's not your intent. Right. Right. You want to think of the outcome, the desired outcome. So what do I need to do? Work backwards. What do I need to do to get the outcome? How do I want that person to feel when they leave the room? So that is, that, that is something that I think is so, so important. That is to me, like we many times just kind of jump into these conversations or it's kind of like jumping into a trip without even sort of charting your path to the destination. And like hmm. the basis of, from my view, the basis of all persuasion is this feeling in your gut. Like, 
you persuade here and you lock in the persuasion like up here, right? You, you, yeah. you persuade through emotion and you lock it in with logic. Obviously you need a balance, um, in it, but just even just going through five minutes and saying, by the end of this conversation, I want X to happen. And mm -hmm. that's naturally mm -hmm. going to cause you to like, you know, naturally be a little bit more empathetic if you need their buy-in or be a little bit yes. more confident in the steps that we took in a data breach scenario. For example, we took these steps. This is where the failure was, whatever. So you, you know, maybe in that you want them to show, you know, you want them to feel like, you know, there's a high level of competence and this is sort of a tail event or something, wh whatever those things are. But if you're not charting to that thing, you're not going to wander to the top of the mountain. You know what I'm saying? It's not mm -hmm. going to just naturally happen on its own. Okay. So the True. next, the next one is what? Be fully present and fully focused. It is. So we live in a constant state of distraction, right? <clears throat> so you want to stay focused on your message to determine the impact and result of your message. So uh, if you're thinking, you know, oh my God, I, I've got to get this over with and I just, I just need it off my desk, that's going to impact your delivery. So again, practice helps with this. Just, you know, sometimes for a difficult message, I'll meditate for a couple of minutes before I, what I know is going to be a challenging meeting or a difficult message. Um, and that helps me just clear my head. It's great pull advice. In, yeah. Pull in empathy and just, I, I did, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the chief happiness officer at Google. He's a wonderful guy. He wrote a book. And um, one of the best takeaways I got from his search inside yourself leadership was he was Buddhist, is Buddhist. And every time, and he would constantly have people interrupting his schedule and his time. And that was, he didn't like it as a, as a human, but in his spiritual values, he wanted to be present for everyone and realized it was he had to be available. Yeah. He would, when someone came in his room and said, hey, can I just talk to you for a minute? He would say, he would say, sure, let me just get a pen. Even if he had one in his pocket. And he did that and it was brilliant. He would walk over to his desk and in that time, he was wow. calming himself down and giving himself 30 seconds to forget whatever he'd been thinking about, whatever that person interrupted and to walk over so that when he sat down at the table with the person, he could be fully focused. I just love so that. powerful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, because I mean, again, I think like my wife sure knows when I'm thinking about work while we're talking, you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> everyone can read that on you. Everyone can read if you're present and you're engaged or if you're checking your phone and doing other things to your point and, you know, building yeah. that little ritual in that's probably so powerful. I mean, that I'm going to start hiding t pens in my desk. You know what I'm saying? Cause <laughs> I might need that hit that, uh, that tip. Yeah. Some, some, some way to take a, even a 30 second beat, is it's really powerful. It's really powerful. I do it with my kids now too. They'll, they'll knock because I'm working from home, you know, and they're home more now because it's summer. And I'll say, they'll say, can you help me? I'm say, yeah, just give me a second. And I'll write down whatever I was doing. Smart. And then I'll, I leave my desk. I've learned I have to leave my desk or like you, they know that I'm still not fully present. And that's not the parent that I want to be. Right. So I realized I have to physically get up because there's a mind-body connection with yep. this stuff. Physically get up and I walk in and I, and I go to them. So yeah, I had and a then, client. And then now they know mom is here and you're present yeah. and you can, whatever advice you get, you know, again, that task switching doesn't work. Us kind of doing two things at no. once, it doesn't work. You just do two things, you know, crappy. What, what were you saying about your client? Yeah. Oh, I had a client who had the same issue. Her feedback was, um, you're not present, you're scattered. I don't ever feel like I can come and talk to you about anything. And she was in charge of a, a Fortune 500 um, section of a, a law department. And so one of the things that we did is she's, she was in a cube environment, as unfortunately some of us are who even work on confidential work, which is the way it is. Yep. I've, been, I've been in that situation. And 
I said, well, let's talk about what you do physically. You know, when someone comes in and, and, you know, and she said, well, you know, I, I turn around and I talk to them. I said, I said, okay, next time that happens, I said, stand up and, and say, Hey, let's take a walk, Yeah, you know, and, 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 and she, if it was a quick thing, she would still stand up, but then they were eye to eye and she yeah, was, right. she wasn't, and, and cause she surprised like 50 people and she was getting feedback that she was off putting, um, di- cold distanced, no one felt comfortable with her. She, incredible technical expert. And she actually was a really warm person. Right. It just wasn't coming across. I could see that in her, right. but it wasn't coming across. So this one behavior change shifted everybody when I went back and got the feedback. It probably changed it pretty quick too. Yeah. It's immediate. It's fantastic. Now it usually takes, they say, you know, repeated instances of a behavior changes, changes the impression. So it's usually right. six to 10, depending yep. on what it is. But if they're like, well, that was cool. And they're like, huh, I want, right? You're like, hmm, that's different. Then you do it again. They're like, oh, okay. And then like the third time you're like, wow, this is, she's like really with me. This is cool. Yeah. And she's changed, she's, you know, and, and you may not even put your finger on what changed. Yeah. But. Right. Um, there's this famous story of, you know, somebody who went for coaching and, you know, they were complaining about all these people in their office and how difficult everybody was to work with. And, you know, through the coaching, they got some things to work on themselves and they changed some perspectives. Yeah. And then, you know, a month later they said, man, it's crazy. I don't know what happened, but like everybody is different at work. And it's like, well, they're not different. You're different. Um, <laughs> but that leads to why growth doesn't happen on a linear basis. It happens on this sort of parabolic um, yeah. arc because Absolutely. what you're doing, you know, when that, when that person who maybe was giving that negative feedback about this individual being cold or unapproachable has a different interaction, they want to kind of test that out again. And so the odds of them following up sooner versus the sort of status quo is going to be a little bit higher and that starts to stack mm-hmm. on itself. So the, the rate of, uh, opportunities for new in- interactions tends to go up when you exhibit some different behavior, which can allow for quicker stacking of those new behaviors to get to that six to 10 instances more quickly. And again, all of this stuff is flexible. All of these impressions are flexible. All of these uh, brands, these monikers we have, whatever they are, the stereotypes, these are all flexible and they're all movable, but it takes that consistent effort, as you say. Yeah, it does. So talk to me about conveying benevolent, proactive intent, maybe in the context of like letting somebody go, because that's some bad news sometimes. Like, how do you do that there? Yeah, that one's tougher, I would say. Um, it is. Yeah, it is. This the, works the perfect for the uh, data breach. Right, which is really the intent yeah, yeah. that I wrote it for. Mm-hmm. So do you mind if I touch yeah, yeah. that one first? Let, let's do that. Because I came across some what motivated me to go deep dive on this, and because I have a keynote and I've spoken about it a lot, is, be, is because of some social science research I uncovered. There's always been this phrase, you know, the, the messenger gets shot. No one wants to be the one to deliver the bad news, Right. If you saw Succession, no one wanted to be Greg, right? Right. Um, so Tom was always like, "Greg, you do this." Yeah. Um, Greg, this is right up your alley, buddy. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Go, you know, lo- love you. Wouldn't want to be. Wouldn't want to be you. You know. Mm-hmm. And so um, the reason is, we as human beings are programmed to dislike people who bring us bad news. Interesting. How and we're we're inclined to not trust them. Um, and it gets even better. And I'm saying that sarcastically. We ascribed ill intent to them. Wow. That they, that they actually wanted, there's some weird part like in it. our reptile brain that says they, they wanted this to happen. And you could see that like with yeah. some things, right? Um, but that is not good for compliance officers or for HR or for anyone who pretty regularly has to like 
you know, say some stuff that's not uh, revenue generating, right. shall we say, right? And so, which is usually the best news to a CEO. So um, we need to be aware of this. Uh, I, I was pretty shocked when I found out, like, wow, this is this is like a career uh, derailer for, for many of us in gatekeeping roles. And so um, what you need to do to counteract it is to uh, be aware of the bias, number one. Uh, number two, help remind the person that, that they hired you to do this job by expressing genuine empathy about it. For example, you know, if, you, if I were to say, hey, uh, we have a data breach, you know, and, and if the person's getting angry or they're getting to say, I understand that, this is my job, I'm here to help, you know, and then, then it can kind of, the person can be like, oh yeah, they're here to help. Like that's the message. Help. That's basically the message you need to get across in whatever words are comfortable for the situation and the time when you're delivering bad news up the chain, particularly. Um, if you had a hand in the issue, if you or your team screwed up, um, you want to offer a sincere apology and a remediation plan. You want to tell the truth. That's really important for trust during a difficult situation, right? Even when it hurts, you want to tell the truth. You want to show people you care and you want to immediately move to potential solutions. So, you know, how can we fix it? How can we get the, can we get this paid back over time? Communicate the path forward and the efforts that are underway to help mm -hmm. prevent it from happening again, because compassion emphasizes your good intent as wanting to be a trusted advisor and not that you're the cop, like, ha ha, caught this one. Yeah. Right. That, that is like the, the exact wrong thing. You want to be the mayor. You don't want to be the cop. Right. You want to be like, Hey, I'm here to make everything work well, I'm here for you, I'm the ambassador, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think if it is your job, in your example, then it's incumbent on you to convey a sense of security to that person in the face of this, you know, tragedy or whatever, like data, data breach in your example. And I think you can really add some tangibility and kind of anchor that, um, that trusted advisor position you're trying to ascend to by having kind of kind of a tangible plan, right? To say, yeah, here's how we're going to re remediate it. So here's the issue. Yeah. Here's how we got here. Here's what I think the biggest risks are. This is my 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 area. And balancing that sort of confidence, maybe boldness is the wrong word, but confidence and saying that you yes. know what my my value is not in my plan, but in my ability to plan because things are always changing. And this is a change that was obviously unforeseen, despite yeah. the controls that we had in place. So here's here's the plan that I'm going to take. I'm happy to talk about kind of the logic behind you know the steps that we're going to take here. But balancing the anxiety that this person is probably going to feel, you know, trying to extinguish that with some empathy, and mm -hmm. you know. Uh, backing that up with a tangible plan, I think, can do do a lot for that person to see that you really do have proactive intent and you're coming from a benevolent position, not somebody who's, you know, um, just rejoicing in the bad news that they're conveying to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, so explain without justifying is a good one. And I just, um, before we get into that, though, there's this concept in customer service. And I think this came from uh, Steve Jobs. And he okay. said that anytime there's an issue, anytime there's a problem, there's two coins on the table. And one is a small coin and one is a big coin. And whichever one you pick up, the other person is going to pick up the other one. So if I pick up the big coin, you're going to pick up the small one. If I pick up the small one, you're going to pick up the big one. And the coins um, correspond to like how big of a deal it is or how much care you're putting into it. So if you think about if you go to a restaurant and you order a dish and it comes out cold and they treat it like it's not that big of a deal, the feeling you have versus... 
it comes out cold and they come over and they're super effusive and they're apologizing and the manager comes over and they comp something. How do you feel in that case? It's really not that yeah. big of a deal for them to heat it up again. I mean, nobody's really that, that much of a tyrant, right, at a restaurant. But I think our, uh, our tyrannical natures can come out if we feel like there's a mismatch between the expectations we have for the dining experience we expect, the service we expect from this individual and that which we mm-hmm. get. And so it's always, in my mind, it's, you get no points for ever picking up that smaller coin. You only can ever get points from picking up the bigger coin. And maybe if you, you know, and again, this is not about this being disingenuous. I think it's really about being real and empathizing with the position that this person is likely going to have in the context of whatever is going on. So if you can always pick that up and you can oversample or, you know, overweight the empathy that you're going to bring to that conversation, overweight that sort of understanding, it's going to cause you to be a little, to take a little bit more care um, and to probably leading into the next one of, of explaining without justifying, without us having that inherent defensiveness that comes along with bringing that small coin when we're in self-preservation self-pres- mode, we can be more authentic and be more vulnerable or intimate, whatever you want to call it, which is ultimately going to be the foundation for the, the trust that I think we're trying to reestablish in the context of this you know, mess that we're in. I love that story. I hadn't heard that. So always pick up the big coin. I'm going to remember that, Nick. It's a good one. I mean, it's good. good You know, I do it with my kids. I do it with my wife. I, you know, and, and it just forces you to not be defensive. It forces Mm -hmm. you to say, this is a disaster. This is really falling apart. Or it probably feels like X, Y, and Z. And if you can get them to start to think, if you can get someone to say, as I'm reading to you, what I think you're upset about or how you're feeling, if in your head, you're saying that's right, not you're right, but that's right. Um, that is how we shift someone to really, un- really believing that we, s- that we understand them. Like if mm-hmm. I'm saying blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yep, that's right. Well then now, you know, and you've confirmed that me and you are on the same page. That's, that's what trust is, you know? Definitely. So how do we explain without justifying? Yeah, that's another critical one. So it's important to, to avoid anything that sounds like an excuse. Right. If it was on your watch, you know, maybe of course, is it, is it, whether it's fair or not really isn't the question. I think some people get stuck on, it's not fair. You know, I didn't do anything or it was the vendor's fault or whatever it is. It it doesn't really matter. It's on your watch. you got to be leaderly. you got to just own it, share the facts with your audience so they understand what occurred and done well. You're going to be seen as as trustworthy and sincere and stakeholders will find your explanation reasonable. So they reduce the blame that would be ascribed to you because of the, you being the messenger. And it increases the perception of fairness and enhances credibility of your message. But you and I both know that any kind of excuse, you know, you're picking up the small coin when you make an excuse, right? Yeah, right. And, you know, the battleground is in the other person's mind. Like beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Blame is in mm-hmm. the eye of the beholder, especially in a you know, a hierarchical kind of an environment where you're kind of giving bad news to your boss, like their perception is your reality. And I think if you're coming in defensive, well then, you know, when there's smoke, there's fire. And when people are overly defensive, um, which again, kind of, you know, kind of marrying both of these, uh, these, these conversations or, you know, marrying some of those, those kind of earlier points and rehearsing it and really kind of being present and getting your, your mind clear really helps us to stay in our sort of our, uh, you know, it prevents us from falling into our backup style, which is usually like kind of that caged animal thing. And then the other risk, which I put as a sixth point, which may not always be the case, but if something really bad has happened, like, like a major customer data breach, I know we've been using that one or discovery of bribery, you know, could be another one, right. Or a a big litigation being filed and you need to, to let people know the board know about this. Um, You want to, you want to, Avoid the temptation, which is a very human temptation, to downplay right. the, neg- the negative impact of 
the situation because we know from change management, which is another thing I focus on a lot with my clients, the steps to change management, urgency is needed for change. It, right. Without it, change is dead in the water. We talked about it with coaching, right? There has to be a, a, a pain point. There has to be urgency. There has to be a plat- burning platform. That's what we call it, right? Um, so there's there's a human temptation to to be like, you know, this really isn't that bad. Like, But if it's a change that's needed in the organization and we as change leaders, as compliance officers, need to be aware of that role, we will extinguish the urgency that's needed for that change, for getting funding to make sure it never happens again. You may be coming in and say, I've learned what happened. This is the root cause. Mm-hmm. I need to ask for budget to fix this. If you've already said, well, it's not that big a deal, yeah, exactly. they're going to be like, well, I thought it wasn't that big a deal. I'm not giving you money. We're like tight right now. Right. So um, you, you just, you know, you might tell yourself, you know, consciously or unconsciously, I need to soften this so someone doesn't get fired. You know, or something, but you need to look at the greater good. You need to be leaderly, which is always looking at the greater good, not at the small picture, the long game. And and you may need to frame it up and say, yeah, there is urgency around this. And I'm I'm on it and I'm gonna come back to you potentially with with some recommendations and possibly some asks. I need a little more time. I'll get back to you and you know, I'll I'll give you updates along the way, but I'll know in about 30 days. You know, give as much information yeah, as you right. can. I've, appreciate we don't always know what we what we know right there has to be fact finding there has to be time we know it's important to get it right so yeah but you can always to your point um manage expectations and convey mm-hmm. something about what's coming down the pike so if it, even if yeah. it's just research hey i don't have an- answers right now i'm going to research it and give me three days to get back to you they just need need a loop to close because an open loop creates this sort of anxiety yeah. in folks um yeah. i think that's a really really important uh point that you that um, you just made. And really, can you think of a situation where it's beneficial to like downplay the urgency? I feel like you, I can't think of a situation where it's not likely most beneficial or like a better bet to just turn the urgency up to 10, especially if it's something that you're responsible for as you're reporting it up to, you know, again, I'm talking about this data, this data breach thing. Like if it's, if it's a data breach or something like that, if it's something where it's bad news, but it is already contained and it's knowable and it's fixed, then I could see a situation where you're where you're saying to okay, say sure, a, sure. to say a CEO, this happened. You use all the steps, but you may not need the sixth step because you'd say this actually we we were fortunate. This didn't result in you know a covered entity type yeah. of thing. I, I had one, I had one of those. We still decided to notify the customer. This this goes is a great story for the Bitcoin thing. We had a situation where. Um, we had a, a, you know, covered associates under uh, the uh, privacy breach disclosure mm-hmm. laws, big client, big, big client um, of, of ours. And we decided to notify them anyway, even though it wasn't required by mm-hmm. the law. They loved us. I'm sure. For letting Well, they them trust out. you then. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I remember I, I coached the attorney who needed to make the call because it was their client and we gave them bullet points and, and they just were loyal for life. I mean, Bitcoin, you know, I mean, people are trying to um, like we all have these complex ecosystems that we need in order to do our business, this mix of vendors and employees and contractors Mm -hmm. and all these kinds of things. And what, you know, a company is just like, uh, you know, a coach or a a team lead or whatever you want to call it. They just want to they just they need to have the confidence that the people that are on the court playing their positions are playing them authentically and running the plays Mm -hmm. that, you know, the coach wants. So. 
um, erring on that side, you know, but I, but I think even in the sense of like, if something's contained, I would probably still be talking about the urgency that, you know, drove our action, you know, like I've taken this really seriously. I'm, you know, you can trust me in this role. I think sure. that's how I want sure. everyone to feel at the end of a kind of, kind of a conversation like this. Like, yep, things went, went wrong. I'm on it. Here's our plan. This exactly. is how we got here. Whatever. That, that part, I totally agree with you. Yeah. 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 Um, it's man, it's such a, it's such a fun game. It really is. It's so, it's so interesting. And we're at this, it seems like we're at this inflection point where, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're teaching, it feels like, you know, what did you call it? Like people are in the coaching zone or something. It feels like maybe our, our industry is starting to broadly kind of fall into this coaching zone where, where we're open to seeing how little tweaks to our, to the way we kind of comport ourselves in our organization can, can really help us elevate. Are you seeing that kind of on a macro sense or do you think it's a little bit more, you know, individual and it's a little bit all over the board? I think so. Um, I think so. I think companies recognize the importance as well. And, and my coaching is, is B2B. So, you know, company, people will come to me individually and then they'll get sponsored by their organization. Sometimes companies will come to me and I'll get the phone call of, Hey, we've got someone, mm-hmm. usually a head of HR. Um, and they'll say, you know, they don't know this yet, but we're going to tell them they need coaching. Those are a little harder to build the trust with because it's hard if someone's voluntold yeah, right. <laughs> for coaching, um, as opposed to if they're like, I want to grow or I'm not getting promoted and, and I've already been told I have budget or if they, you know, if, if they have, if they're senior enough, they usually have control over their budget. But um, so, yeah, I, I think I am seeing it across the board. I don't know any great CEO personally that doesn't have a coach. Yep. And that's helped a lot. It used to be seen as remedial, you know, in the old male culture of, you know, we never show any weakness. Right. You know, let's say back in the to, to just be stereotypical back in Mad Men days. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. In the 50s, you didn't see it. And you didn't see a lot of women in leadership, you know, either, obviously. And so whether it's because of that or just the demands of the new generation, I know you've got kids, I've got kids, they expect to show up as their full selves at work. Right. You know, I think there's more willingness. I think there's, it's more normative to mm-hmm. have coaching and it's, it's seen as for successful people, not for. Yeah. It's not like a know. weak thing, you know, it's really, it's, I want to be the best. Look, yeah, I right. mean, Olympic athletes have trainers. I have a trainer because I won't work out if I don't have a penalty, pay money penalty. Right. So like, I know what I need to do. And coaching is just the same way. It's like, okay, it's for leadership. It's for, it usually helps you in your whole life too, which is, which is, I'm not a therapist, but things that are showing up at work are usually showing up at home too. Right. So it's, so it's helpful, you know? Yeah. Um, that is true. Yeah. You're not a therapist, but, um, you kind of do some therapist-like things because you're dealing with the whole self, you know? We're not these two different sort of entities, a home Nick and a work Nick, you know? Right. We're just one person. Um, usually if we, if we lose our temper, like if we have a hair trigger temper, that's a great one where... Got um, it. You know, great example. I'll usually, I'll usually get a comment if you like, you know, my spouse is starting to notice that I'm more patient and, and they thank you. <laughs> Right. So, you know, because I know my boundaries, I, I really, you know, I really, we have an eth- a code of ethics as, as coaches, just like we do as compliance officers. And so, you know, if there's really a psychological issue, we call it. But if it's right. a habit that is obviously showing up, that's a negative habit, that's different. Um, in those case, those cases where someone is like voluntold to do coaching, what is like, what is your path to get getting that sort of coaching window opened? Is that, I mean, that's probably incumbent on you to do, right? Like, I'm, and I would imagine that sometimes you're met with a little bit of resistance and, you know, maybe someone's ego's in the way and they're that, well, there's, that, there's usually that skeptic- window's not all the way open. Yeah. It's usually skepticism. Um, 
are you really on my side? Right. You know, um, is everything I say going to be just a direct line to HR or to my boss? Right. You know, and so I have an airtight confidentiality clause in my contract that even though someone else is paying me, um, you know, my client is the individual and that I, um, will generally not, I have three way meetings, but not without my client present. I don't want to triangulate. The goal of coaching is not to get in between or to supplement what the leader or boss or uh, client should be having a conversation about. So if I get someone, for example, I've, I've gotten this before, I'll get a call and I'll personal say, you know, this person's just not performing and I need you to bring them up to speed. And I hear what they're saying and it's never going to work. Like the things they're asking are, are way beyond simple coaching. So I'll say, you know, um, this isn't something that's appropriate for coaching really, but I'll coach you to coach them. Got it. Well, well I mean, often, to the point yeah. from earlier, there, there's always something you can do from a high agency standpoint. And that's what kind of mm-hmm. that, this approach is doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. So, uh, as we're wrapping up, I'd love to hear about your uh, sabbatical. How cool is that? Oh, it's great. <laughs> How long were you out <laughs> it there? Was wonderful. Six weeks. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's, you can really kind of, I mean, it's like you lived there. You went to Spain, right? I went to Spain and Morocco. Yeah. Oh, cool. Where, so, wh- what part of Spain were you in? We spent a few days in Madrid and then most of the time I was in Sevilla. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, so tell me what was your, like, I don't know. Is that kind of a once in a lifetime thing? No, I'm actually, the downside is I'm, I'm, I'm kind of addicted to the idea and I want to do it again. <laughs> You're going to do annual sabbaticals? That's even, cool. even, even when, uh, when I was getting ready to leave, I'm like, oh my God, where could I go for the next one? <laughs> um, it started with my daughter's semester abroad. So that's why we were, we were in Sevilla and I just realized, oh my gosh, this is a wonder. I love walking cities. Yeah. Don't need a car. Like for me, that's leaving stuff behind. Yeah. I, I got rid of my Apple watch. I put on my, my, my beautiful timepiece that I don't wear anymore because I don't track all my, it's, you know, track all my your steps and all stuff. that. Yeah. 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 I was like, no, I'm, I want to like, I want to have a mind shift. I don't want to actually know exactly what time it is. I don't want a digital watch anymore. Like literally I want the little hand. Like I, I made a bunch of shifts to like mentally shift from getting out of my space. I don't speak Spanish. I did try to learn some when I was there, but also being in a place where I know I wasn't going to be talking as much or yeah, right. listening, listening and, it was amazing to just kind of, you know, be walking around and, and listening and observing and navigating. I wanted to put myself down somewhere that was, for me, you know, comfortable and safe, but, but foreign and, and challenging in all the right ways. Creative, lots of art, amazing architecture, incredible history. Um, and then going to Morocco, I went with a, with a good friend um, and we did a, an adventure tour for like two weeks. And that was amazing. And I learned so much about culture and history of Southern Spain and Morocco that I had not known in terms of Islam and Christianity and yeah, it's, the combining it's, of cultures. It's it was so fascinating. Yeah. It was fascinating. Amazing. And everyone was, I just learned a lot. It was fantastic. Got some family time, got some time alone, did, did coaching for existing clients in the middle. Um, and then, and then went to Morocco. So you know, sometimes a long weekend or a, uh, like a vacation, it feels like a, um, like a fortune cookie, you know what I'm saying? Where like a six week trip <laughs> like this, where you're unplugged. I mean, that's like a chapter of your life now. I mean, I'm sure that's going to be, you'll think back on that for the rest of your life. I'm sure. Yeah. I wanted something. I knew I needed to stay on top of things. So I can't say I, I did not go off the grid. Like some people do six weeks is too long for yeah, me with, right. with two businesses. Um, 
and other stuff going on. So, um, but I made other shifts and other changes. I didn't take on new work for a time. Cool. I didn't do any speaking engagements. I didn't do any writing uh, for business journals and things. I just committed to my existing coaching clients and carved that out. And the rest was family, friends, and my own space to recharge. And it was fantastic. So this is kind of a big question, but like coming back, what's different? How are you seeing things different after these six weeks? I mean, it's still pretty fresh, right? Like that was a month or so ago. Like, yeah, it what is it? How is, how are the lenses that you're seeing the world through changed from that experience? I've got the perspective I wanted that others that I, that I coach have, you know, taking my own advice really, um, that everything will get done, that it, it just yeah. slowing down my own. I, I move pretty fast. I put a lot on myself. It's my, I'm programmed that way. So I have to, actively consciously take steps to to have a better equilibrium and show up the way I want to so this was one of my projects to do that uh, and so man. I've, I've carried that with me I've carried that with me is more of like I took it's great because now I can be like Amy like if I get worried about something or deliverable I'm like Amy you took six weeks off the world didn't fall apart yeah you know, every in fact relationships everything is so much stronger like I'm I'm you know, even more of a believer. And I've taken breaks before, but never one this um, indulgent, yeah. frankly, creatively. And um, just so I am, I feel really blessed, frankly, to have been able to take it. I mean, at some level, we're all kind of like in this flow of life. We're like going down this river of life. And, you know, many times, at least for myself, I feel like, oh, I'm not going fast enough or, oh, I'm going too slow or, or I'm going too fast or whatever. When many times that's just the pace of the natural change, I think unplugging from that and realizing that like that river is going to carry you kind of irrespective of the anxieties, you know, the sort of additional anxieties you, you, you pace on that flow can allow you to kind of flow a little bit more gracefully or something and just kind of keep yeah. a little bit more perspective or not waste so many sort of mental anxious ridden calories and, you know, worrying about things that are outside of your control or something. Well, the other thing that you brought up too, that's, that's really, really, really big picture um, is that, I, um, I believe one of the only ways to slow time down is to get out of your routine. Mm. And one of the best ways to get out of your routine is to leave and go somewhere else. It doesn't have to be somewhere fancy like Spain or Morocco, right? It can be, you know, just renting an Airbnb somewhere yeah, right. on, the co on the coast. I'm in California, so, you know, whatever. Um, I, I started noticing that with my kids when we would go away together as a family and just change our routine. And I've That's so read, true. That's so true. I, yeah. I, I've read that there's a great book, like um, If I Live to Be 100. And this guy went around and interviewed people who are 100 years old or over. And like, what's their life like now? What's it like to be 100? What would they have done differently? You know, what is a, what is a long life like? And it's a really introspective, interesting book. And um, they all, you know said that the times they remember are those times when they were out of routine. Right. Time passes more quickly when we're in our routine. And so I like slowing my life down because I, I, don't, I want it to be punctuated with these moments of yeah. meaning. And I don't want it. I love my work and I love what I do. And I want a bigger, a bigger like high line going on. Yeah, yeah. At the same time as I have my, my regular life. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Um, it's such a, it's such a true thing. I mean, I don't remember Tuesday two months ago, you know, the first Tuesday of two months ago, but I do remember last Tuesday cause I was on vacation and I remember what I did nice. with my kids, you know? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's so, uh, life is a crazy thing, man. It'll just like, if you're not careful, it'll like eat you up. If you're not careful, it'll like pass you by. And I mean, how tragic yeah. would that be to be at the end of it all and be like, man, I never took that sabbatical. I got a top bucket list item now of a sabbatical after, after this, I just heard. I mean, I, I, I never, uh, I never thought about it, but it, but I, I get it now. I get what it can do and I get the, the impact it can have. And it's like this massive, uh, I don't know, kind of a reframe probably of life and priorities and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't want to be just stuck in my, you know, I also feel like in America we can get so stuck in our view of things yep. and there, there are other ways to live life and there are other ways to be. And I kind of wanted to see that. Yeah. And it's not like there's this massive, well, it might go the other way, but it's not like this, there's this massive happiness disparity where we're just busting ass all the time over here and over there where people just, you know, work to live instead of live to work. Uh, they're just yeah. like wildly unhappy. It's actually goes the other way, you know, and it's, it's, it's great to see that in context and see it sort of pervasively across a whole city for an extended period mm-hmm. of time or in a different side of the world to see that like, there's multiple ways to look at this whole thing. There's multiple ways to organize our efforts and, you know, just realize that a lot of the stuff that we are so worried about that we're twisted up into knots about really, uh, are going to take care of themselves. Yeah. Well, Amy, this was uh, everything I hoped it would be and more. Uh, if you don't follow Amy, uh, look at, look at her up or look her up on uh, LinkedIn. It's A-M-I-I, Bernard Bond. And um, check out her website as well, bernardbond.com. There's a ton, I mean, there's constantly good stuff coming out. Um, so we got to get you on the ethics verse. I think we're coming in the fall. We maybe can do something yes. a little bit uh, earlier over the summer to maybe talk about some of these, uh, these promotability things or you know, maybe even delivering bad news. But um, you're just somebody that I've met and I just continue to uh, learn so much from. I'm so thankful to know you and just appreciate you coming on the Ethics Experts. Oh, thanks so much, Nick. Feelings mutual. All right. Until next time. Okay. That was awesome. That was so good. That was great. Yeah.